0: Over time, we have opinions about certain things. We we call this the Olivet Prophecy. It's a a well-renowned expression of the Olivet Prophecy. And as a consequence, we think of prophecy uh, in the terms of things that are going to happen and what's going to be related later. Now, Brother Carter didn't do that. He calls it the discourse. And I believe that what he's done is actually extracted that word prophecy away and put discourse there for a reason because as he says, most of the prophecy relates to AD 70 and whilst there are some extra added parts to his coming at a later point, uh, most of it has to do with the discourse that took place. Now in Luke 21, let's look at the words again and I think it's really worth you underlining and highlighting these expressions because what Luke actually tells us in chapter 21 is this. We looked at it last time, so I don't want to go over everything again, but in, in uh, Luke 21, he says at the end, in verse 34 down to 38, in verse 34, take heed to yourselves. Lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life so that they they come upon you unawares. Now, many of those expressions are going to come out of the other parables, aren't they? When you get to the sower, the cares of this life are the thorns that we introduce into our life that can deprive us of the kingdom. You know, all of the parables, most of the longer parables, all deal with the judgment seat, brothers and sisters. They all take us to the judgment seat. And when he says in verse 35, as a snare it comes on all them that dwell on the face of the earth, watch therefore and pray that always that you may be accounted worthy to escape the things that come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, when he says to stand before the Son of Man, the idea is to stand accepted before the Son of Man. Now, Luke then adds this. In the daytime... He was teaching in the temple and at night he went out and abode in the mount that is called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to him in the temple to hear him. So what we call the Olivet Prophecy in that sense is mainly the discussion in the beginning of Matthew 24 with the disciples as they looked at the temple mount from the height of the Mount of Olives. But most of this is the discourse of what he did in the temple in the daytime. Now this was over a prolonged period. We don't know exactly how long. But what we do know is the incredible emphasis that the Lord placed on his last message to the disciples that were accompanying him in that time, in that time period. What was the important thing for them to understand? Now, most of the prophecy, part of this, has to do with AD 70 then. And Daniel's prophecy of the destruction of the temple in the the city of Jerusalem. And and what Jesus warned, for that generation particularly, was that false Christs would come and they needed not to be deceived. It was really important not to be deceived. Now, of course, when the message was being given, it was going to be 37 years before we get to AD 70. It's a long time to from the days when Jesus was speaking until the reality of the time. Now, we've got to comprehend this too about the expressions that are made. Because the disciples did not comprehend at all that Jesus would be crucified and raised, and after a long time at God's right hand, until the end of the Gentile times be fulfilled, that he would come back, they didn't even understand that. So the questions they are asking can't include that perspective, particularly. It's not like you and I reading it. We're reading it at the other end, 2,000 years later, and we see the relevance of what he said. They couldn't understand that. They did not perceive. They were amazed when he got crucified. Even more amazed when he rose from the dead. And therefore, the, the context of their questions has to be quite different in that sense about what they're asking and what he's actually telling them. You know, we started the night in the reading of verse 36 again because in verse 36 it says this, Of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And what we always say, brethren and sisters, about that is that when brethren start giving us times when Christ is going to return, it's a bit foolish because It tells us here that no man knows, only God. And what we're actually doing in that statement, and many years ago when I was younger, there was a brother in New South Wales that every year virtually came out with a new date as to when the Lord would return. He's been dead for a long time and the Lord is still not here. The dates, all the dates he gave have gone past. Now, is that what it's saying? You see, what you do in verse 36... He says, that day knoweth no man. When you come to verse 42, watch therefore for you not know not the hour your Lord comes. We're back on the time of coming. And when you get down to verse 50, he says, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him. And in an hour he's not aware of. Now, you see, what that's doing is by taking the expression of Jesus in verse 36 and applying it as to the coming of the Lord back to the earth physically, is to actually miss the point of what he's now telling them. It's what your personal hour is, brethren and sisters. And that will apply to every believer in every age. They know not the hour when their Lord will appear to them. This is what the message of Olivet is all about. And the parables are all about that. So the disciples, like you and me, oft times are concerned with time and place. And time and place was their question always, where, Lord, will this be? When will this be? And you know, each time Jesus answered that, I I said last time, and one of the brethren was a little confused, I think, in what I said. I said that Jesus really didn't answer their question, but he he answered it. I I didn't want to be disrespectful in that sense. He gave the perfect answer, brethren and sisters, to their question. But it's not the answer they were looking for. The answer he gave was, when the lightning strikes from one side of heaven to the other, you'll be aware Where the carcass is, the eagles, the the, the vultures gather together, you'll be aware. You don't have to worry about time. You don't have to worry about place. You don't have to worry about any of that. You'll just be there. And so the proverbial answers of lightning from one end to the other and the carcass that the vultures will come to was effectively telling them time and place is not the important thing. Now, it isn't, it? You know, over the years, brethren have argued about this being at Sinai, the judgment seat being at Sinai. Now the logistics of that are pretty fantastic if you think about it, how difficult that would be. But are we thinking about the wrong things when you do that? See, the important thing about the judgment is not where, not how, God God will handle that. As I said last time, when you look at the, the images that God conveyed to the prophets, how he took them out of their present situation and placed them as real as you and I are sitting here in another environment constantly and portrayed to them the visions of the future, he can do that to every one of us simultaneously. At the one time, the judgment seat for millions of people doesn't need millions of hours of transmission to do that. There's not time for that in the schedule, is there? That, that is, that's the power of God's power and immortality. And Christ will be in that. So the important issue for all believers, for you and me, is to be spiritually ready and watching and praying in our own lives until the day unexpectedly comes for us all. I mean, who's going to expect it? Now, we may be fortunate... I say we, maybe you, younger ones, may be fortunate to be here when Christ returns. It's just going to be a few, isn't it, by comparison with the history of the world. Everyone else is dead. In the parable of the, of the virgins, they're all sleeping and it's midnight. Now, midnight's the darkest hour. It's the darkest hour for what? It's the darkest hour for you and me. It's our death. That's our darkest hour. But the instant of the darkest hour is the immediate awakening, brothers and sisters. Resurrection is the immediate awakening. And what happens when we're awake? That's the issue, isn't it? Or if we are here and we're transported instantly to the judgment, as those that are raised and the dead are transported there all at the same time, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly unimaginable feeling for us to experience that. So no man knows the time of the day. You know, I think I think about my wife particularly at the moment because Shelley's been deteriorating for maybe four years and her mind was gradually losing cohesion and... And with dementia coming on, now she's at a point where, honestly, she knows nothing. And she barely knows us when we go and see her. Somewhere in that period, her term finished. I I don't know where. I can't narrate it. But for her, her understanding and awareness somewhere disappeared back there. In certain parts of life or... And other parts were held back in the early years. But it's all basically gone. To her, the next instant, whatever happens to her, the next instant is with Christ. It's at the judgment seat. And you know, this is really what, what he's telling us here in this chapter. So what we need to do is to translate the ideas of Jesus and convey them through This teaching and all of the teaching that he's giving from the Mount of Olives when he goes into the temple is to warn the people they need to be prepared and all of it gets documented for us. Now, we know there's slight differences between Matthew and Luke, for instance, where Luke adds some expressions that Matthew doesn't add. So Jesus must have spoken many, many more words than what we're reading here. So when we read in Matthew, which seems to be the most cohesion record of it, when we read in here, we're we're reading an abbreviated letter, aren't we? But Matthew has already isolated the important incidents in what Jesus had to say. Out of all the things that Jesus may have said in that period of time. If he was doing this day after day, there were lesson after lesson going out, brothers and sisters, image after image, parable after parable was being given but Matthew's put them in an order and he's done it in a very specific way and he's carried ideas through into the chapter 25 that follows now they're the important things for us now now let's look at it just briefly on the screen here and on your page in Matthew 24 and verse 37 we've got the coming of the son of man behold the days of Noah As were the days of Noah, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, in the past, I always contemplated this, that the world were eating and drinking and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. You know, in Noah's day, with Noah having built that ark and 120 years of preaching about it, there wouldn't have been anyone on earth didn't know what was happening there apart from the the children. They're basically all responsible, brothers and sisters. They're really facing a judgment in their day. And what did the judgment do? It took them all away. They had no opportunity to knock on the door after the door was shut. And that that is the point that Jesus is making. He says in verse 39, they did not know till the flood came. They couldn't say they didn't know there was going to be a flood, because Noah had been telling them that for, and building this incredible ship in order to facilitate that time. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. But when he says so will be the coming of the Son of Man, it's, it's the believers of that day or the believers down through the ages that are all going to be in that, in that situation. And when he says in verse 40, there's two in the field, one taken, the other left. One accepted, one rejected. We're at the judgment seat, brother and sister. He's not here saying that when Jesus there'll be two people doing the same thing. One will be taken to the judgment and the other one left behind. I don't think he's saying that at all. What he's saying is, these people are doing the same thing like you and me. We're all in this hall tonight, brethren and sisters. And the tragedy of the expression is. You or me could be rejected and the other one goes into the kingdom. That, that's the reality of the parables that he's given. So when he says two, one taken, the other left, one is not going to be able to get through the judgment seat and go into the kingdom, the other one will be. And that's why he says two women at the mill. You see, it doesn't matter if it's men or women, We look alike, brothers and sisters. If someone stands out of our hall and and watches us come to the meeting on Sunday morning, we all look alike. We all look alike. We come along, we come with the same sort of deportment, we come into the ecclesia, we meet in here, we go out, and as far as that people out there are concerned, we're all alike. But are we all alike to God? When it comes to the judgment, is one taken and the other one left? Now, that that becomes the question of these parables. And and you know, there is nowhere else in scripture where the judgment seat is dealt with like this. This is the only time the judgment seat is dealt with. And and it's left to the judge himself to deal with it. You know, why why does Jesus spend so much time on this? He does not want you and me, brothers and sisters, outside of the closed door in the virgin parable. He doesn't want us there. And that's why this parable's been given. So that you and I can learn what we need to do not to be there in that time, in the wrong side of that. They're the issues. Now you see, the coming of the Son of Man is now the bridegroom in verse 1 of chapter 25. Now, in verse 39, until the day, until the flood, it's now called midnight in the, in the parable in Matthew 25. It's now midnight. Now, I used to say, brothers and sisters, when probably giving lectures or other exhortations, midnight was the darkest hour of the world. No, it's not. It's not the darkest hour of the world. It's your hour and my dark day, which is darkest. That's death. Your death, my death, is midnight. And then he comes at midnight and we wake. But what's going to happen when we wake? And that's what Jesus is dealing with. Jesus is pointing out to us what it will be like when we're awake. Now, you see, in verse 1, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like to virgins that took their lamps. Now, the other thing about this, these virgins, they, they say, well, some of the, the translators actually put the bridesmaid's parable. You know, it's not the bridesmaid's parable, it's the bridegroom's maids parable. And there's a difference here. These are not the bridesmaids for the bride. These are the female attendants of the bridegroom. They are the bridegroom's friends and they are to accompany him to the marriage. And so, in actual fact, you see, in scripture, the images are that we are part of the bride, but on another occasion, we are part of his entourage that, uh, that work with him and teach with him. And, and that's why some say, we taught in your streets. They were teaching about his teaching in their streets. That they're accompanying the bridegroom, they're accompanying his message. They're doing everything for it. That's what you and I are doing, brethren and sisters. But when he says in verse 2, 5, we're wise and 5, we're foolish, there comes the warning, doesn't it? What do we mean by wise? What do we mean by foolish? Now, the key verse is definitely in verse 42, isn't it? Because in verse 42 of Matthew 24, he says, therefore, be ready for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. So we're all going to get a a shock when we're confronted with the reality of the judgment. That that becomes a reality. But there will be different reactions from the believers. Now all of the responsible effectively are gonna be there, but there's gonna be different reactions. And, And what Jesus is pointing out to us is the trauma of those reactions when they're not consistent with him. The trauma. Now you see, in order to point to us the trauma, he finished in verse 51 of Matthew 24 by saying that the servant that beat his fellow servants and eaten drunk with the drunken. Now there's two things there. An attitude to fellow servants. An attitude to fellow servants and a kind and style of life eat and drink with the drunken so there's lifestyle so the attitude to fellow servants is really important here Jesus highlights that your attitude to me and my attitude to you is very important and if that attitude is wrong which he in the parable reveals as a man that smoked fellow servants in order to extravagantly live his own night lifestyle. He smoked them. You see, these ideas are brought out in scripture, aren't they? They're constantly brought out. And and they're brought out from when Jesus introduced his teaching in the Beatitudes and the chapters five to seven of Matthew In which he actually brings the words. If we go to Matthew there for a moment, in chapter 5 to 7, we get the part in verse 23 of chapter 7 where he says, Then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. That's the judgment. And when he says in verse 27, The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and they beat upon the house, and it fell. Great was the fall of it. That's judgment of rejection. And when he said in verse 13, Enter a straight gate, for wide is the gate, that, and broad the way that leads to destruction. Many there go therein. He's talking about people that are walking in the way. They're going to be believers that are rejected. It, this was a horrific thought, but Jesus knew it. And he, he exemplified his teaching of that, brethren and sisters, when we get to the discord, discourse in the Mount of Olives. Now, it's in all the parables, and, and there always comes the point of rejection. And so for us, it's the wisdom to interpret it in such a way that we can realise the things that we ourselves need to do. Now, when we look at the ingredients here of the parable, in verse 42, he says, Watch for you know not what hour. And we looked at that earlier where it began. Now, that watch is in the parable of Matthew 25, in verse 6, is the cry. At midnight, there was a cry made. The bridegroom comes, go to meet him. You know not what hour. That's the watch. That's that's the point in the parable of the virgins. In verse 48, my Lord delays his coming. Now, how does that parallel to to the problem with the virgins? Well, they have no oil. They have no oil. So the attitude of mine, of my Lord delays his coming is an attitude of carelessness which says, I don't have to do anything particularly now because Jesus is not here yet. That can wait till later when the service to Christ has to be every instant of our life and constant. It's an attitude of life that is not contemplating, brothers and sisters, the seriousness of what his coming will mean for us. Now, the smiting of the servants, the eat and drink with the drunken then, is is limited to no oil in the vessels when we get into Matthew chapter 25. There's no oil in the vessels. So we need to work out what this oil is, don't we? What is the oil? Now, we can easily say, well, in the the picture that's given, you've got oil which was taken from the olive as it was in the temple and it was put into the lamp and the the lampstand... Brought forth the, the light, so the oil was the source of the light. Of course, it was. But have you ever noticed the fact that what it says there's a difference between the wise and the foolish. The difference in verse three is those that were foolish took their lamps. So they all got lamps, but no oil with them. Now it, it wasn't that it wasn't that they didn't have any oil because it says in verse eight. The foolish said to the wise, give us of your oil for our lamps are gone out. Our lamps are gone out. So there was some oil there but it's it's now diminished. But it's a critical time to be diminished because the bridegroom's now arrived. And give us of your oil becomes where Jesus spins this parable on its head. It, It makes it an incredibly difficult circumstance. Now, you see, what it says in verse five is, the bridegroom tarried and they all slumbered and slept. Now, it's almost as if he's not aware here or he's not speaking or consciously telling us that some people will be alive and remain when he comes. They all slumbered and slept. Nearly all the Brotherhood brethren and sisters have ever been are dead and they're all sleeping. And at one instant they'll all awake and it doesn't matter when they lived. And there's no time gap for them between 3,000 or 4,000 years ago and today. It won't make any difference whatever. But when they awake, they will all have the same need. Everyone will have the same need. And it doesn't matter if you live with Abraham. If you live with Christ or if you live in our day, it won't matter when. We all have the same need as soon as we awake at the judgment. The instant need is there. Now, when it comes to the need, what it says is all of the virgins arose in verse 7 and trimmed their lamps. They trimmed their lamps. Now, of course, he's using the figure of the wick on the lamp. Now, what happens is when you have a light burning and it goes out, it leaves the charcoal on the, on the, on the wick. So you trim it by taking off the charcoal and let the oil come back again, relight it, and, and now it will light up and it will suck the oil again. But because it's burned out, it won't suck the oil at that point in time. So the trimming of the lamp is very important. Now, that's just a figure. But what's the trimming of the lamp for you and me at judgment? What is it going to be? It's going to be an instant self-assessment, isn't it, brothers and sisters? An instant self-assessment of where we are. The whole of our life's going to be like a panorama before us. And, And here we are at the point of actually meeting the Lord of which we've said we always wanted to do we always want to meet him you know I always think that um, when you find people that are in reasonably good mental health anyhow and they come to their death in the truth and they hardly got a breath that they can speak what they want to do if they're faithful people they are always going to say they want to meet the Lord they want to go to the resurrection. There's an actually attitude there of absolute desire to see Christ. An absolute desire. Now that comes with the trimming of the lance, but not for everyone, because the foolish can't get the light to light. The character that they have is incapable of giving them confidence. Their confidence is eroded instantly on the awareness of the judgment. And they want the confidence, brothers and sisters, that the others have. Give us of your oil. Give us of your oil. You know, the way that Jesus could tell a story was like no other person, brothers and sisters, ever. This is the Son of God, isn't it? Only he, only he could bring all of these factors into together and leave such an exhortation for us to understand. Only he could tell a story like this. And it captured the imagination of all. Now Solomon had a wisdom similar, didn't he, to this. He gave so many thousands of proverbs and people came down to hear him and wondered at the expressions that Solomon made. And particularly early in his life and early in his kingship, he did that. And they came from afar to see the wonder of his teaching. Because he could turn natural things into a story of spiritual meaning. Jesus could do greater than that, a greater than Solomon, his Hebrew and the sisters. But the lessons for you and I need to be meditated upon, don't they? Now when he says, and he puts into the record... The fool he said to the wise, give us of your oil, in verse 8, for our lamps have gone out. There's desperation here. And the wise answered saying, not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But go to them that sell and buy for yourselves. That's an impossible proposition. But you see, all all it's doing here, it's not that the ones that have the confidence don't want to share, it's they can't. They can't do it, brothers and sisters. And you know, in many of the parables when he, uh, he deals with this, Luke 16 is one that always stands out to me. When you go to Luke 16 and you have the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and you have the Pharisee as the rich man that always denied helping Lazarus that so was full of sores at his gate and would not even give him the crumbs of his table, So this was the attitude of the Pharisee. Or, in the parable, it can extend to the attitude of brethren that don't have sympathy for their brothers and sisters. It's the same thing. But what we find in verse 24, that he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. So he puts a picture of one being tormented. The torment's going to be mental torment, brothers and sisters. The mental torment of not being equipped to be accepted. And Abraham said, Son, remember in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus evil things. Now he's comforted and you're tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, that there's between sheep and goats in one parable, between the wise virgins and the foolish virgins in this parable, brothers and sisters, is a great goal fixed. It's fixed. So that they which would pass to you cannot. And neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. You see, it's a desperation of rejection, isn't it? Absolute desperation of rejection. And you see, it's an elaboration on what Jesus was saying in verse 51 of chapter 24. Because in there he was saying, he will cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the person that had not lived the life that the Lord required was a double personality. It makes us question our loyalties, brothers and sisters, and it makes us question our motives, doesn't it? Is it possible there's hypocrisy here? The hypocrisy of this person was such that he said he was serving his Lord, but he was smiting the servants, and he wasn't caring for them. He wasn't providing for them. But the Lord wanted to make him a ruler over all his goods but instead he cut him in two because he was a double personality. It's just a way of defining rejection. But what he's telling you and me is the pain of it is this. It will be extreme weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that expression he's reserved for the judgment seat always and every time he reserves it, brethren and sisters, and says it, he wants you and me to think about that don't, don't put ourselves in a position of weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is impossible to cure. It's an impossibility to cure it. Now that's the worry, brothers and sisters, of that situation. So let's have a look then at this parable on the screen here and on your sheet. The parable about wisdom, meet the bridegroom. They're all responsible and accountable to judgment. You know, you have to say, don't you, that probably Matthew 25 and 20, uh, 24 and 25 are the most powerful exposition of judgment in Scripture. So we need to think about it. You know, we, we think we are familiar with it. When we read the virgins, I'm, I'm sure you'll say, oh, we know the story. We know the story of the virgins. It, it's not that we don't know it, brothers and sisters, it's that we don't extract it to the limit, do we? We don't think it through. I, me too. It's the same with all of us. We, we think it through when we're given a project to do it. But we've got to think through the Lord's words. And we've got to appropriate them and apply them. Because that's what he means us to do. What does he mean when he says, go to them that buy for your, and buy for yourselves? What he means is, now in your life, we have to do the things, brethren and sisters, that will Preserve us when the day of the judgment comes and find us acceptable. Now, what are those things? See, we can say, well, what is the oil? What is the oil in verse 3? They took no oil with them. What is the oil? So, it's the Word of God in the heart. Now, probably, in a simple state, the Word of God is in the mind of every brother and sister. It has to be more than that, doesn't it? You see, when he then adds that the wise took oil in their vessels, they've got something that the others didn't have. They've actually got another supply of oil. So they've got a supply of oil besides their personal characters or their mental aspirations and ideals. So the lamps are our our character with the word of God being manifest in it. But maybe the word of God's not manifest there. But the vessel's important. And the vessel will be important at the judgment seat, brothers and sisters. It's the oil in the vessel. And it'd be silly for you and me to read what Jesus is saying, come to verse 4, and say, now, Jesus is saying, the wise have got a vessel that the foolish haven't. It'd be crazy for you and me not to know what that vessel was, Uh, and not to assess why that would make a difference between the wise and the foolish. It would be crazy to do that, wouldn't it? We're missing the whole point of what he's saying here if we do that. Now, when we look at all of his teaching and we look at the whole teaching of Scripture, we we know that the Scripture says that faith without works is dead. So what does that mean in that chapter then? Faith. Someone had faith, they got baptised, they've ended up at the judgement seat, brothers and sisters, amongst the virgins that were accompanying the bridegroom, they've ended up there. So the vessels with the oil, and it must be the works that are missing, are they? It's not just the the word of God in the mind, brothers and sisters, it's the word of God through the mind that is the actions that we do. And see, next week, brothers and sisters, when we come to the latter part of this chapter, we'll find that when we get the judgment, it's all about what you did. It doesn't make one mention about what you believed in doctrine, it's all how it outworked in your life. There has to be the outworking. The outworking is the most important thing, it's the only thing that proves that we're genuine. It's the identity. Uh, When the scripture says that we can see that they have been with Jesus, it means they act like him. You don't see a person looking like he's been with Jesus if it's not in the activity that he does. It's only his activity. It's not what he says. Although some of what he says will be part of that, of course. So there has to be a very genuineness, brothers and sisters, in all the things that we do, one with the other, so they took their lamps—that is, their thoughts and their actions—and it's what they should be shone before others, isn't it? It's the history of their discipleship. But the wise have the oil in the vessels, the hearts and the minds—a history of activity devoted to God and Christ, towards others, always towards others, brothers and sisters. But whenever Jesus talks about it, it's always towards others. You know, when we when we get to Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. I always think this is significant. We can say, what is the Lord's Prayer? And we could thumb it off easily, brethren and sisters, and run through it. And so he says to them in verse 8, Be not therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth the things you have need of before you ask him. After this manner, therefore pray you. And he recites the Lord's Prayer. But then he comes down after he's finished the Lord's Prayer in verse 13 and says, and he only says this about it, about the rest of it, nothing, but of this, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. And if you forgive not men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will not forgive your trespasses. Out of the Lord's Prayer, that's what he extracts as the vital lesson for the moment for those that are there. So it's what we do, isn't it? And forgiveness for others' trespasses. It's an attitude of mind here, isn't it? I mean, if there's a literal trespass against us by a brother or a sister, then we have the need to show forgiveness and not to harbour any resentment on that. That, that's vital. So we have, to, we just gotta do that, brother and sister. Now, when we have a reluctance to do that, we actually know that what Jesus is saying here is, if you don't, your heavenly Father cannot. They're incredible warnings that, that Jesus is giving us. And that's coming out here in the vessels. That, that part of the vessel, isn't it? The vessel is a life where you forgive others there's no self-glorification, brothers and sisters. There's humility. There's trust in God. There's a lack of pride in ourselves. You know, these are the hardest things in life that we ever, we ever do. And we know that however we do them, brothers and sisters, we depend on the forgiveness of God. You know, when he gets to Matthew 18, what he tells us is, in Matthew 18, he brings out these same points He gives the the parable of the man that owed 10,000 talents, an unpayable debt. Now, that's your sin and mine. There is none that have not sinned, not one, Paul says. So therefore, none of us are worthy of the kingdom by that. The only ones who will get in the kingdom are the ones God forgives. But he only forgives those that forgive others. And in that parable of the, the servants and the... The debtors. He comes to the end of it. We know the story, brothers and sisters, and he says in verse 32, Then his Lord, after he called him, said to him, O wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt. When we're baptised, that's exactly what God did. Forgive all the debt. Because you asked me. Just because you asked him, I forgave it. Should you not have had compassion on your fellow servant as I had pity on thee? And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors to he should pay all that was due to him. You see, we don't, we don't want that. that. That's the judgment seat, brethren and sisters. And, and, and it's where we are in Matthew chapter 25. It, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's just the different elements in different parables that Jesus is giving. So they trim their lamps. in in point five here, that is they set them alight. So the wise wise had a radiance of expectancy and excitement that was shining forth. It it was their confidence. And and the foolish lacked the confidence were fearful, worried, and dull. (sighs) Now in the first epistle of John, John says, of those that were looking for his coming, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, and we'll see him as he is. You know, there's, there's a kindredness here. I mean, we're always going to be an extremely poor image, brothers and sisters of Jesus. But John says, in the judgement, when we have confidence because we have in our lives followed the decrees of, of the Lord and tried to do what he does, even though we're going to have many faults that he needs to overcome, we're actually going to see him and there's going to be a likeness. There has to be a likeness. So the difference between the foolish and the wise in the judgment is going to be confidence because their lives have built into them the fundamental things about the character of Christ and they've done their best to manifest that in their life despite their faults and their many sins are going to be forgiven in order for that to be accomplished. So give us of your oil their confidence and fearlessness because they realised they did, had none of this. You know that's going to be the difference of people isn't it? We looked at Luke 16 and And that was the issue that was in Luke 16. The great gulf fixed. Terrible, brothers and sisters. We don't want to be on the wrong side of a great gulf fixed, which is the gulf of rejection. So the wise said, How to go? The market had already closed, brothers and sisters, too late. It's midnight. There's no one open. It's too late. But the other virgins came saying, went into the uh, and the door was shut in point verse in point 9. Those who were ready verse point 8 went in with him those who accepted and the door was shut I put in Luke 12 and verse 8 I, I just think this is a terrific verse. Have a look in Luke chapter 12 and verse 8 In Luke 12 he says in verse 8 also, I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man confess before the angel of God. Now, when we read the word confess, we have a tendency to think about that as being spoken. Well, spoken it would be, but it has to be lived, doesn't it? It's whosoever has lived this profession and confession, brethren and sisters. I say unto you, whosoever shall live it and demonstrate it before men, men, before men, him shall the Son of Man confess before the angels of God. What a welcoming into the, the world of immortality, brothers and sisters. But then he says, but he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. What, a, what an awful experience, brothers and sisters. And when he says the angels of God, he must indicate, mustn't he, that whereas we say the angels are around us and they guide our lives and they're watching what we do, they're not interfering with what you and I do. They might provide, provide scope for us to do certain things. But those angels are going to be there and are going to witness to what we did and what we didn't do. And unfortunately, we're either going to be confessed before them as accepted by the Lord or denied, which will be a horrific experience. And it will be the same as he said before, a great gulf fixed. Can't change it. Can't change the situation. So the other virgins came in point 10 here. And they said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But the answer came, I know you not. There can't be any worse expressions for us brothers and sisters in scripture than that, can there? I know you not. So we could spend a life thinking, we've been going to the Ecclesia, we've been attending all the things, but our attitude's not been correct. We haven't properly depth the meaning of the word of God and what it means in our lives. And we've ended up in a position of rejection and to a weeping and gnashing of teeth with self-pity, sorry for ourselves. But what it's saying is, the only reason I'm not in the kingdom is me. The only reason I'm not in the kingdom is me. I could have been there. But of those that go into the kingdom, the only reason I'm in this kingdom is because God has forgiven 10,000 talents of sin. There's a a vast difference in the attitudes and one is realistic and one isn't. So knocking on this closed door will be life's worst experience brothers and sisters. And we pray God that by considering these things together that we might be well aware of our, our duty and our need to live the simple things of life and keep the attitudes right. Not wonderful, great, glorious things do we have to do. We just have to live the truth and that way find the forgiveness that God gives and find entrance into his kingdom in the day to come.